Welcome to another Anesthesia Compass podcast. Last week, I was talking to Mark Newton about Kijabe Hospital in Kenya. It's my favourite hospital. Here's one of the many reasons that I just love it. I was there one day and it was a warm afternoon and we'd been busy and my hosts took me upstairs in the operating theatres to the tea room where there is a wonderful view of the Rift Valley, same view you can see on the front of uh, my book. Uh, Sitting, drinking my cup of tea, I noticed something very strange going on. The theatre nurses would come up and get their tea out of the urn, and then they had a blue plastic bucket, and they would tip one cup of tea into this bucket, swirl it around for half a minute or so, and then tip it back into the cup before drinking it. And all of the nurses who came through were doing this same ritual. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So eventually I asked, and one of them said to me, well, our colleagues downstairs are still very busy, and we want to get back to help them as quickly as we can. But the tea is really too hot. We don't want to burn our throats, but we do want to get back to work. So we use the bucket to make the tea cool enough to drink quickly so we can go back to work. I haven't been in many hospitals that had that attitude in the middle of a busy working day. When I spoke to Mark, I asked him to tell us about some of the inspiring people he's met over his years working in Kajabi. Mark, you must have met some pretty interesting people during your time in Africa. Um, people that maybe uh, have given you hope or inspired you or, or uh, caused you to despair. Uh, yeah. Any particular stories that people would like to hear about, do you think? Yeah, thank you, Mike. I mean, it's, I've certainly met many over the last um, 22, 23 years. And uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about a couple. I mean, there was there's a surgeon, by, his name is Peter Nthumba, and uh, Peter is a Kenyan. He went to medical school and, uh, in Nairobi at the University of Nairobi. He came to Kajabi as a medical student, had an experience there, actually did his internship, one-year internship at Kajabi Hospital. He did general surgery at Kajabi Hospital. He practiced as a general surgeon, and a general surgeon in Africa is somebody who does urology plastics, they do everything, Any, anything, it's kind of an old school general surgeon. So he was doing all that. And in the process of doing that, he decided that he wanted to become a plastic surgeon. So plastic surgeons from all over uh, North America would come and, and basically see his skill. And he graduated really at the top of his class in medical school and even in high school. And uh, anyway, decided to train him to become a plastic surgeon. So they were able to organize him to spend time in India and then also in Spain. At both of those places, they offered him spots to just, why don't you stay at our hospital and become a plastic surgeon? He decided, no, he was gonna come back to Kenya. He was gonna be involved in caring for the poor. He came back to Kajabi Hospital, set up a very, very significant plastic surgery uh, service. And this is, this is a guy that doesn't do uh, nose jobs and, uh, small little plastic surgery. These are people that have been sent from all over East Africa to this guy to basically perform miraculous pediatric surgery. So, I mean, plastic surgery. So during that time, 
He also became a leader in the country and he became the president of the, the Surgical Society of Kenya and was leading basically the country and, and from the surgeon's perspective. He really now is an international lecturer. He lectures all over the United States and, and I'm sure he goes to meetings in Europe and things like that. But uh, this is a guy that now has a son who, who had a perfect score, raised in Kajabi uh, in, in an SAT and got a scholarship to an Ivy League school in the United States. And now the son wants to basically become a plastic surgeon like his father and come back to Africa and do the exact same thing that his dad's doing. So this is an amazing story of, a, of an African surgeon who's really been committed to the poor. So that's Peter. Uh, the second one is the one that's really the main person. When I talk about all the anesthesia that's been developed at Kajabi Hospital, it can never be done without uh, this person I'm about to mention. Her name is Mary Mungai. And I know, Mike, you know Mary, and she may have been the one that called you into the room to squeeze the bag, but uh, she basically knows everybody that comes to Kajabi. And I had to train someone in Kajabi that if I needed to be resuscitated or I had an accident, I needed to have someone to call. So one of those was Mary, because I was the only anesthesiologist there. We were running eight operating rooms, and I was, I was really the only anesthesiologist. And I told my wife, if I go down in an accident, make sure you call Mary. She will be shaking, but she has the skills to take care of me. But Mary was born at Kajabi Hospital. She was a very poor family and uh, born at the hospital, did nursing school at Kajabi Hospital. She was in the first class of the uh, nurse anesthesia program at Kajabi. She's now the, the national leader for KRNAs for the whole country. So she's involved in managing all these programs. She became the executive member of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. So she's the African representative of that. She just got her master's in medical education at the University of Edinburgh. She was involved in all those programs I was telling the, uh, the podcast earlier about South Sudan and Somalia. She was the one that really was the main person driving this. And she's been trained to do simulations. So she's doing, she's really a simulation instructor for East Africa. She's now training doctors actually to do simulation in, in East Africa. So that's Mary. I mean, she's just amazing person. <clears throat> and then still in anesthesia, I mentioned South Sudan earlier, but her name's Bejuk. Again, she came from Khartoum, Juba, Kenya, learned uh, English, basically became an anesthesia provider. These are people who during the civil war during their training, they went back to their home as kind of a Christmas treat. During that time, the country blew up. And uh, for three or four days, she was on the floor of her house in an area of South Sudan as this militia was coming in, basically uh, destroying the area. And so she was, she's been through a lot, obviously, as a, as a person in South Sudan. But she's come back. She's now in Kenya. Her goal is for us to train her to be an educator to go back to South Sudan once there's more stability and start a nurse anesthesia program. And then from our pediatric anesthesia, there's a lot of people that are really inspiring that I work with all the time now that have come to Kenya and become pediatric anesthesiologists that have gone back to their countries to really lead in, in anesthesia in general, but also pediatric anesthesia. But one of them is called Christopher Chandra. And Christopher came from Zambia he, uh, he was trained in pediatric anesthesia. He's gone back and really he's been placed now 
as the anesthesiologist for the government of Zambia to run anesthesia services uh, and you know, a visionary type person for the country of Zambia. So these are all, these are just four, there's, there's many more, but these are all people that are, would be inspiring to all of us uh, as far as anesthesia providers or surgeons in, in East Africa. Thanks for letting me tell the stories. Oh, thank you. And uh, I, as you started telling us about Mary and I thought, oh, why am I not interviewing Mary instead of him? All right, well, we, we <laughs> um, can do that later. Tell, tell her I'll get round to her as, as soon as I possibly can. That'd be um, great. Let, let's just talk about you for a minute because you, you've been, for more than 20 years, you've been going back and forward from, uh, from Vanderbilt to, uh, uh, to Africa. Um, has it been difficult for you personally to maintain professional links in, in such different places and environments? How have you managed that? Right. I mean, I, I know that people that listen to this podcast, they're probably wondering about those types of things. They're physicians or, or non-physicians and they, they have some professional requirements and things like that. So I had to consider that. And so the model that I had uh, worked out is that they were, I was always a faculty member at some academic university. So the, for the first 10 years, I was in Africa for four years. I would go back for a year and work. And I did that for 10 years. And so I was always considered part of the faculty. I wasn't paid uh, for that time. But then now the model is I'm in Africa for nine months and I go back and work at Vanderbilt University for three months. And so I couldn't do that without a academic institution that's willing to invest in, you know, East Africa and, and really be involved in education. This is a university probably similar to Oxford where they, you know, they, they want to be involved in education. So they basically sent me out there as their representative and I'm able to uh, represent them and educate in Africa and commit for five or 10 years. But the professional part of it is, is interesting. You know, when I, I'm in Africa and I have halothane and ketamine and pentothal and pancuronium and then I come back to Vanderbilt and I say, where's the halothane? There's no halothane. There's no, we do have ketamine, but there's no pentothal. Nobody knows how to use pentothal or pancuronium. So you have desflurane, sevoflurane, isoflurane, and you have everything else. So it's kind of nice. It's, it's, it's really fun to be able to come have access to all this stuff. But I have maintained all of my license. I've done CME. I've been involved in national societies. I've been involved in the WFSA, the International Society. So that has allowed me to have interaction with peers who are uh, teach me, teach me how to be a better pediatric anesthesiologist or cardiac anesthesia or regional or whatever. So I have been able to maintain that, but I've, I've had to be flexible. You know, it's, it's kind of weird going back and forth between high and low and being able to adapt. And so if you're, if you're a really rigid type person, try to uh, be less rigid. And uh, it's part of the experience, right? You've been through that, Mike. Just a bit. Yeah. You mostly, I've, I've been a short-term visitor, and you must have had a lot of experience of short-term visitors, both both good and bad. Tell us about some of the good ones and some of the, actually tell us about the bad ones. Those are those are the ones we really want to hear about. Well, uh, it, it's always good. I will tell you about a few bad ones, but uh, just to be. Uh, honest, the vast majority of visitors are really good. And they come out with a, it's all about your attitude, right? And if you have an attitude that says, I want to learn, I want to be uh, friends and, uh, you know, I don't know everything. It's, it's, and you want to have relationships, you want to invest. I mean, that's always, those are always the positive people. Those are always the work out great. 
but there are also some bad ones. I mean, there's, there's, I, you know, I can give you some examples, but if you come out with an attitude where, okay, I know everything, you know, I'm from, uh, you know, I'm from London or I'm from Los Angeles or I'm from Houston, Texas, and I, and, and I really know all about anesthesia, uh, I'm going to come teach you a thing or two. You're, you're probably not going to last. I actually asked some of the Africans, how long does it take you talking to a visitor before you know if they're going to be good? And they said less than five minutes. They less than five minutes, I can tell what type of person they are based upon the words they use and how they talk to me and stuff. So if, if someone in Kenya senses that you're talking from the mountaintop down to them in the little valley, it's not going to work. You're, you're not going to be listened to at all, so you might as well just go home. Uh, if it's more equal and we're all friends and we're trying to become relationships, that's important. But uh, some of the bad ones that stand out, <clears throat> I will say that um, we had a, a neurosurgeon that had been trained in North America and they had uh, basically known everything. So they were going to come to Africa, <clears throat> excuse me, and do neurosurgery. And it's super difficult to do neurosurgery in Africa as a baseline. But this was a young graduate. They had saved up cases for this person. Uh, and they're coming into this new environment. So all that is very real. And I can appreciate that. Uh, but again, it comes in with your environment. And so during the case, they had lined up some difficult cases. But this person had been trained to do that. She had actually agreed to the cases. But then when the case started getting touchy, you don't have as much infrastructure. You don't have anybody to call for help. You, you don't have people that speak the same sort of dialect of English as you do. And then all of a sudden, a few curse words come out and you're yelling at people, you're throwing things. That really shuts everybody down. And so basically somewhere in the middle of that case, I was called in and said, the Africans who are in the room don't want to work with this person anymore. And I had to basically convince everybody, okay, let's just finish the case. Let's get this done. After the case, we had to have a little powwow and talk to the surgeon and said, okay, this is the deal. This is a hospital has been here for 105 years. The people that are in the room with you, they're friends of mine. We've, we've been training them for a long time. <clears throat> they're very good at what they do, but they don't handle your attitude. And this person, okay, uh, I guess I can do it. Uh, they were there for two or three weeks. Basically, the next day, the same thing. And, and we basically had to come to a decision to stop cases. And, you know, we, we don't need that. And so there, there are examples of people who come in, <clears throat> excuse me, where they, uh, they just don't have the right attitude. And uh, we can't sacrifice our relationships with our colleagues in places like Kajabi for a short-term person that comes in that wants to change the world in two weeks. It, it's not going to happen. And uh, so that's rare, but it does happen. And uh, we've had also people that have come in and, you know, it's, it's hard to be a surgeon in Africa. And uh, it's, it's, they, they think that because they've been practicing in private practice for 20 years that they're experts at everything then they realize hey maybe i'm not as good as i thought i was but uh and that's that they come to this reality while they're in africa and uh it's difficult we did have one ob doctor who had never seen a mother die in 
basically 15 years of private practice in the United States. The first week, there were two women who had died. And, and basically, this person was going to get on a plane on the weekend and go back. And this was going to be our OB-GYN doctor for two months. So we had to really sit down and talk to him and say, we will help you get through this. But if you go for the next two months, we won't have anybody that can do, or very few that can be, do OB-GYN. And so we need you to stay. But it, that's difficult. I mean, it's difficult to work through that. And this person actually worked themselves through it. But it's, it's part of the process of doing healthcare in a country where potentially you're going to ha see more higher morbidity and mortality than you normally would. Now, the, the next question is sort of, but not, not exclusively, but uh, there are financial aspects to it. Uh, because there's lots of people who, who want to help in one way or another. How can high income individuals, and that includes everybody really who's listening to this podcast, except uh, one or two whose names I could write down. Um, but how, how can individuals help improve the anesthesia issues in, in low and middle income countries? Well, thank you, Mike. I mean, I, I do think it's, it's good to go in with a plan and idea and, and all of us do have resources and we have uh, financial resource and we have time and we have access and all of those would, would play into it. I think you really have to decide on how you're going to be involved. And uh, I think being involved in a longer term and the way I like to think about it, a short term model is more like a firefighter. You come in, you do a little bit, you, you bring everything you have in, then you, then you take off. The long term approach is more like a building a bridge and or a big road. You just have to be committed to a longer period of time. You have to say, I'm going to come in. And the goal is to train someone who can continue and building the bridge and the road and things like that. So that takes a longer period of time. So whatever you do, wherever you decide to work, basically you need to be invited. And I don't think you should come in with your own agenda, but you should ask, say, for example, you wanted to work in Tanzania and you wanted to work at a certain hospital in Tanzania. You should meet if you're an anesthesia provider with the Department of Anesthesia, whoever's the anesthesia leader, and get to know them and talk to them and find out what their needs are. And if their needs match what you think you can help them with, then you should do that. Don't ever overpromise, but also do things that are appropriate in that type of setting. So I think sometimes what we want to do is come in and change things real quick and uh, drop, you know, drop some pounds or drop two or three hundred dollars and say, here, take this and do this. Don't, don't do that. I mean, it's much better to be involved in the educational infrastructure that's going on in the country. And for example, if you have access to a bunch of laryngoscope handles and blades, you basically need to find some system so you can distribute it uh, throughout a country or throughout a region so that they can take care of it. So I think a lot of it, Mike, is just institutions and individuals be committed to real partnership and and also be committed for a longer period of time and and go deep don't don't try to cover 20 countries in five days try to cover be involved in one place one country for three to five years and then move on to the next place but uh it takes commitment that that's kind of the final word does does kijabe have input or uh relationships with the kenya government or with other comparable hospitals in uh in Kenya, how does that work? Yeah, they do. I mean, that we're, we're basically part of the Kenyan healthcare system so that uh, when the Kenyan government says we need to train interns, young doctors, they send them to Kajabi. And then once they graduate, they go to government hospitals and 
then if the government has access to, as an example, ventilators, they say, okay, we, we've been given 40 ventilators. Do you, do you guys at Kajabi need two ventilators? And we'll say, okay, yeah, we only need one, but we need an ambulance. And then the next time maybe they get a country that, you know, some country donates 20 ambulances, then, then they may give us one. So yeah, we're very much involved in what they're doing. And so some of the protocols that have been written for the Kenyan government, Kajabi's involved in that. Most of our doctors are, especially the Kenyan specialists are heavily engaged in their societies and their universities. And at, at, because of all of our leaders are Kenyans, I mean, they're definitely involved in what's going on in the country. I mean, they're involved at a very, very, very high level. I mean, these are all people who are friends of people who are involved in the Ministry of Health. And so this guy that's like the president of the surgical side of Kenya, the, the head surgeon for the country would be his good friend. So he, they would talk all the time. So we're, we, we really go with the government and, and do things with the government. And the president comes out and visits the Minister of Health, the nursing council. So Kajabi's really considered within the government system part of their hospital system. We just function as a, as a faith-based non-government hospital, but we, we do everything with the government. Finally, some, some of our listeners may well be thinking that they would uh, uh, consider coming to work in a developing country for a period of time. And you must have done some training yourself before you went out the first time. How did, how did you approach that? What, how did you find out what you would need to know different and do different before you got there? Or have you learned yeah. all of the job? Yeah, well, you know, I'm like everybody, most people that are listening. I mean, I was trained at the high income countries. And so I, I think it is good to do short term trips and investigate. I think it's very difficult to be knowledgeable without doing anesthetic cases in a low and middle income country. It's not possible. And so I, I spent time going on trips for you know, two week trips and things like that, gaining some skills and learning from the Africans. I mean, everybody, they, they taught me how to do anesthesia in these settings. And then there are courses that you can go to that are super helpful uh, and, and books that you can read about, you know, doing anesthesia with ketamine or how to use pentothal and, and, and those types of things. But I, I, I really do think the biggest part of it is an attitude and, and being willing to learn and being willing to partner and being willing to, to basically not feel that you have to have 99.9% .9 success in everything that you do. I mean, there's going to be situations that people come in that are super sick that you just don't have the infrastructure to uh, take care of them. And, and that's difficult. That's difficult for all of us to do that. But you have to say, I'm, I'm going for the masses. So even now when I talk about what I do, I'm really a population anesthesiologist. And so I I say, okay, this is a country, this is a country that has two anesthesiologists. How do I want to be involved in what's going on in that country? So I would educate yourself about the country. I would educate yourself about the need. I would make relationships with anesthesiologists who are working in those countries. Don't go in as a lone ranger and try to do everything on your own. I would not do that. I would, I would go in, find the society, find the uh, academic institution, find the physicians, ask them what you want what they want you to do and partner with them. So, so much of it is that. I, I think as far as skill level, most people are trained at a fairly high skill level. I think it's really now just having to adjust to a different amount of pathology 
and uh, resources and things like that and be be comfortable with trying blocks without an ultrasound and be comfortable with doing a big case without an art line and a PA catheter and and be you be comfortable using a single lumen tube for a thoracotomy and all those types of things. So you, you have to be willing to say that anesthesia can be done with less resources and still be done safely. A lot of it depends on what it goes on between your ears and how you process. Not really if you put in a an art line or not. There's definitely cases where I put an art line in, but there are cases that in the West I would put an art line in because it's there but I don't actually know if I actually needed an art line, but it, it's put in. So that, that's, that's kind of how I would address that question, Mike. Well, thanks very much. I think we've come to the end of our time, but uh, it's been a, a treat to talk to you again. And uh, thank you so much for being with us. Good, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you and uh, what you're doing and, and the people who are listening. I, I, I just want to encourage them to be involved in what's going on in the world. It's, uh, it's good to get out of your comfort zone and experience what's going on in the, uh, not only in Africa, but Southeast Asia, Pacific Islands. Do have a look at Kajabe Hospital's website. It's at Kajabe Hospital, that's K-I-J-A-B-E Hospital, all one word, dot org. Next week, we move from a hospital with 105 years of history to one that doesn't exist yet. Dr. Karen Layden is going to talk about the strategic choices she's been making in the design of an anesthesia service for a hospital in northern Ghana that's still being built. Whichever country you're interested in, you might find it worthwhile to have a look at the interactive world map on the international section of the Association of Anesthetists website. Click on any of the markers in a specific country to find details of projects that have been happening there and the name of a contact person. It could be a great way for you to get involved as an individual. Thanks again for listening today. Don't forget to tell your colleagues to subscribe to the Anesthesia Compass podcast from wherever you got this podcast. Now it's goodbye from me, Mike Dobson. Goodbye. <laughs>